Chapter 7 of Katrina by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Wayne Cook. Chapter 7 I Make a Fault in Honor. I came forth, I vow I know not how, on the Lang Dykes. This is a rural road which runs on the north side over against the city. Thence I could see the whole black length of it tail down. From where the castle stands upon its crags above the lock in a long line of spires and gable ends and smoking chimneys, and at the sight my heart swelled in my bosom. My youth, as I have told, was already inured to dangers, but such danger as I had seen the face of but that morning, in the midst of what they call the safety of a town, shook me beyond experience. Peril of slavery, peril of shipwreck, peril of sword and shot, I had stood all of these without discredit, but the peril there was in the sharp voice and the fat face of Simon, properly Lord Levitt, daunted me wholly. I sat by the lakeside in a place where the rushes went down into the water, and there steeped my wrists and laved my temples. If I could have done so with any remains of self-esteem, I would now have fled from my foolhardy enterprise. But, call it courage or cowardice, and I believe it was both the one and the other, I decided I was ventured out beyond the possibility of a retreat. I had outfaced these men. I would continue to outface them. Come what might, I would stand by the word spoken. The sense of my own constancy somewhat uplifted my spirits, but not much. At the best of it, there was an icy place about my heart, and life seemed a black business to be at all engaged in. For two souls in particular my pity flowed. The one was myself, to be so friendless and lost among dangers. The other was the girl, the daughter of James Moore. I had seen but little of her, yet my view was taken and my judgment made. I thought her a lass of a clean honor, like a man's. I thought of her one to die of a disgrace. And now I believed her father to be at that moment bargaining his vile life for mine. It made a bond in my thoughts betwixt the girl and me. I had seen her before only as a wayside appearance, though one that pleased me strangely. I saw her now in a sudden nearness of relation, as a daughter of my blood foe, and, I might say, my murderer. I reflected it was hard I should be so plagued and persecuted all my days for other folks' affairs, and have no manner of pleasure myself. I got meals and a bed to sleep in when my concerns would suffer it. Beyond that, my wealth was of no help to me. If I was to hang, my days were like to be short. If I was not to hang, but to escape out of this trouble, they might yet seem long to me ere I was done with them. Of a sudden, her face appeared in my memory, the way I had first seen it with the parted lips. At that, weakness came in my bosom and strength into my legs, 
and I set resolutely forward on the way to Dean. If I was to hang tomorrow, and it was sure enough I might very likely sleep that night in a dungeon, I determined I should hear and speak once more with Katrina. The exercise of walking and the thought of my destination braced me yet more, so that I began to pluck up a kind of spirit. In the village of Dean, where it sits in the bottom of a glen beside the river, I inquired my way of a miller's man, who sent me up the hill upon the farther side by a plain path, and so to a decent-like small house in a garden of lawns and apple-trees. My heart beat high as I stepped inside the garden hedge, but it fell low indeed when I came face to face with a grim and fierce old lady walking there in a white mech with a man's hat strapped upon the top of it. "'What do you come seeking here?' she asked. I told her I was after Miss Drummond. "'And what may be your business with Miss Drummond?' says she. I told her I had met her on Saturday last, had been so fortunate as to render her a trifling service, and was come now on the young lady's invitation. "'Oh, so you're sixpence,' she cried with a very sneering manner. "'Have a gift, a bonny gentleman. And ha' ye any other name and designation? Or were ye baptized sixpence?' she asked. I told her my name. "'Preserve me,' she cried. "'Has Ebenezer gotten a son?' no ma'am said i i am a son of alexander's it is i that am the laird of shaw's you'll find your work cut out for you to establish that quoth she i perceive you know my uncle said i and i dare say you may be the better pleased to hear that business is arranged and what brings ye here after miss drummond she pursued i'm come after my sixpence mum said i it's to be thought being my uncle's nephew I would be found a careful lad. So ye have a spark of sleeness in ye, observed the old lady with some approval. I thought ye had just been a coof, you and your sixpence and your lucky day and your sake of my withered. From which I was gratified to learn that Katrina had not forgotten some of our talk. But all this is by the purpose, she resumed. Am I to understand that ye come here keeping company? This is surely rather an early question, said I. The maid is young, so am I, worse fortune. I have but seen her the once. I'll not deny, I added, making up my mind to try her with some frankness. I'll not deny, but she has run in my head a good deal since I met in with her. That is one thing. But it would be quite another, and I think I would look very like a fool to commit myself. You can speak out of your mouth, I see, said the old lady. Praise God, and so can I. I was a fool enough to take charge of this rogue's daughter. A fine charge I have gotten, but it's mine, and I'll carry it the way I want to. Do you mean to tell me, Mr. Balfour of Shaw's, that you would marry James Moore's daughter? and him hanged well then where there's no possible marriage <laughs> there can be no manner of carryings on and take that for said lasses are brookle things she added with a nod and though ye would never think it by my runkled chuffs i was a lassie myself and a bonny one lady allardyce said i 
for I suppose that to be your name. You seem to do the two sides of the talking, which is a very poor manner to come to an agreement. You give me rather a home thrust when you ask if I would marry, at the gallows foot, a young lady whom I have seen but once. I have told you already I would never be so intently as to commit myself. And yet I'll go some way with you. If I continue to like the lass as well as I have reason to expect, it will be something more than her father, or the gallows either, that keeps the two of us apart. As for my family, I found it by the wayside like a lost bobby. I owe less than nothing to my uncle, and if ever I marry, it will be to please one person. That's myself. I have heard this kind of talk before you were born, said Mrs. Ogilvy, which is perhaps the reason I think of it so little. There is much to be considered. This James Moore is a kinsman of mine, to my shame be it spoken. But the better the family, the mere men hanged or headed, that's always been poor Scotland's story. And if it was just the hanging. For my part, I think I would be best pleased with James upon the gallows, which would be at least an end to him. Katrine's a good lass enough, and a good-hearted, and lets herself be deaved all day with a runt of an old wife like me. But, you see, there's the weak bit. She's daft about that long, false, fleeching beggar of a father of hers, and red mad about the Gregora, and the prescribed names, and King James, and a ween blethers. And you might think ye could guide her. Ye would find yourself sore mistaken. Ye say you have seen her but the once. Spoke with her but once, I should have said, I interrupted. I saw her again this morning from a window at Preston Grange's. This, I dare say, I put in because it sounded well, but I was properly paid for my ostentation on the return. "'What's this of it?' cries the old lady, with a sudden pucker of her face. "'I think it was at the advocate's door, Chick, that you met her first. I told her that that was so. "'Hm,' she said, and then suddenly, upon a rather scolding tone, "'I have your bare word for it,' she cries, "'as to who and what you are.' By your way of it, you are Balfour of the Shaws. But for what I can, you may be Balfour of the Devil's Oxter. It's possible you may come here for what you say, and it's equally possible. Ye may come here for deal care what. I'm good enough wig to sit quiet and to have kept all my men's folks' heads upon your shoulders. But I'm not just a good enough wig to be made a fool of neither. And I'll tell you fairly, there's too much advocate's door and advocate's window here for a man that comes tangling after a McGregor's daughter. Ye can tell that to the advocate that sent ye with my fond love. And I kiss my loof to ye, Mr. Balfour, says she, suiting the action to the word, and a broad journey to ye back to where ye came frae. If ye think me a spy... I broke out, and speech stuck in my throat. I stood and looked murder at the old lady for a space, then bowed and turned away. Here, Hoots, the callant's in the creel, she cried. Think ye a spy? What else would I think ye? Me that kens nothing by ye. But I see that I was wrong. And as I cannot fight, I'll have to apologize. 
A bonny figure I would be with a broadsword. Aye, aye, she went on. You're not such a bad lad in your way. I think you'll have some redeeming vices. But, oh, David Balfour, your damned country feed. You'll have to win over that, lad. You'll have to supple your backbone and think a wee pickle less of your dainty self. And you'll have to try to find out that women folk are nae grenadiers. But that can never be. To your last day, you'll ken no more of women folk than what I do of sow gelding. I had never been used with such expressions from a lady's tongue. The only two ladies I had known, Mrs. Campbell and my mother, being most devout and most particular women, and I suppose my amazement must have been depicted in my countenance, for Mrs. Ogilvy burst forth suddenly in a fit of laughter. <laughs> Keep me, she cried, struggling with her mirth. You have the finest timber face, and you to marry the daughter of a highland cadron. Davy, my dear, I think we'll have to make a match of it, if it was just to see the winds. And now, she went on, there's no manner of service in you dadling here, for the young woman is from home, and it is my fear that the old woman is no suitable companion for your father's son, for by that I have nobody but myself to look after my reputation, and have been long enough alone with a seductive youth, and come back another day for your sixpence, she cried after me as I left. My skirmish with this disconcerting lady gave my thoughts a boldness they had otherwise wanted. For two days the image of Katrina had mixed in all my meditations. She made their background so that I scarce enjoyed my own company without a glint of her in a corner of my mind. But now she came immediately near. I seemed to touch her, whom I had never touched but the once. I let myself flow out to her in a happy weakness, and looking all about, and before and behind, saw the world like an undesirable desert, where men go as soldiers on a march, following their duty with what constancy they have, and Katrina alone there to offer me some pleasure of my days. I wondered at myself that I could dwell on such considerations in that time of my peril and disgrace. And when I had remembered my youth, I was ashamed. I had my studies to complete. I had to be called into some useful business. I had yet to take my part of service in a place where all must serve. I had yet to learn and know and prove myself a man. And I had so much sense as blush that I should be already tempted with these further on and holier delights and duties. My education spoke home to me sharply. I was never brought up on sugar biscuits, but on the hard food of the truth. I knew that he was quite unfit to be a husband who was not prepared to be a father also, and for a boy like me to play the father was a mere derision. When I was in the midst of these thoughts and about halfway back to town, I saw a figure coming to meet me and the trouble of my heart was heightened. It seemed I had everything in the world to say to her, but nothing to say first, and remembering how tongue-tied I had been that morning at the Advocates, 
I made sure that I would find myself struck dumb. But when she came up, my fears fled away. Not even the consciousness of what I had been privately thinking disconcerted me the least, and I found I could talk with her as easily and rationally as I might with Alan. Oh, she cried, you have been seeking your sixpence. Did you get it? I told her no, but now I had met with her, my walk was not in vain. Though I have seen you today already, said I, and told her where and when. I did not see you, she said. My eyes are big, but there are better than mine at seeing far. Only I heard singing in the house. That was Miss Grant, said I, the eldest and the bonniest. They say they are all beautiful, said she. They think the same of you, Miss Drummond, I replied, and were all crowding to the window to observe you. It is a pity about my being so blind, said she or I might have seen them too, and you were in the house. You must have been having the fine time with the fine music and the pretty ladies. There is just where you are wrong, said I, for I was as uncouth as a sea-fish upon the brae of a mountain. The truth is that I am better fitted to go about with rude as men than pretty ladies. Well, I would think so too, at all events, said she, at which we both of us laughed. It is a strange thing now, said I. I am not the least afraid with you, yet I could have run from the Mrs. Grants, and I was afraid of your cousin, too. Oh, I think any man would be afraid of her, she cried. My father is afraid of her himself. The name of her father brought me to a stop. I looked at her as she walked by my side. I recalled the man, and the little I knew, and the much I guessed of him and comparing the one with the other, felt like a traitor to be silent. Speaking of which, said I, I met your father no later than this morning. Did you, she cried with a voice of joy that seemed to mock at me. You saw James Moore? You will have spoken with him then? I did even that, said I. Then I think things went the worst way for me that was humanly possible. She gave me a look of mere gratitude. Ah, thank you for that, says she. You thank me for very little, said I, and then stopped. But it seemed when I was holding back so much, something at least had to come out. I spoke rather ill to him, said I. I did not like him very much. I spoke him rather ill, and he was angry. I think you had little to do then, and less to tell it to his daughter, she cried out. But those who do not love and cherish him, I will not know. I will take the freedom of a word yet, said I, beginning to tremble. Perhaps neither your father nor I are in the best of spirits in Preston Granges. I dare say we both have anxious business there, for it's a dangerous house. I was sorry for him, too, and spoke to him the first, if I could but have spoken the wiser. And for one thing, in my opinion, you will soon find that his affairs are mending. It will not be through your friendship, I am thinking, said she, and he is much made up to you for your sorrow. Miss Drummond, I cried, I am alone in this world. 
and I am not wondering at that, said she. Oh, let me speak, said I. I will speak but the once, and then leave you, if you will, forever. I came this day in the hopes of a kind word that I am sore in want of. I know that what I said must hurt you, and I knew it then. It would have been easy to have spoken smooth, easy lie to you. Can you not think how I was tempted to do the same? Cannot you see the truth of my heart shine out? I think here is a good deal of work, Mr. Balfour, she said. I think we will have met but the once, and we can part like gentlefolk. Oh, let me have one to believe in me, I pleaded. I can't bear it else. The whole world is clanned against me. How am I to go through with my dreadful fate? If there's to be none to believe in me, I cannot do it. The man must just die, for I cannot do it. She had still looked straight in front of her, head in air, but at my words or the tone of my voice she came to a stop. What is this you say? she asked. What are you talking of? It is my testimony which may save an innocent life, said I, and they will not suffer me to bear it. What would you do yourself? You know what this is, whose father lies in danger. Would you desert the poor soul? They have tried all ways with me. They have sought to bribe me. They offered me hills and valleys. And today that sleuth-hound told me how I stood, and to what a length he would go to butcher and disgrace me. I am to be brought in a party to the murder. I am to have held Glenure in talk for money and old clothes. I am to be killed and shamed. If this is the way I am to fall, and me scarce a man, if this is the story to be told of me in all Scotland, if you are to believe it too, and my name is to be nothing but a byword, Katrina, how can I go through with it? The thing's not possible. It's more than a man has in his heart. I poured my words out in a whirl, one upon the other, and when I stopped I found her gazing on me with a startled face. Clenure, it is the Appen murder, she said softly, but with a very deep surprise. I turned back to bear her company, and we were now come near the head of the bray above Dean Village. At this word I stepped in front of her like one suddenly distracted. For God's sake, I cried, for God's sake, what is this I have done? And carried my fist to my temples. What made me do it? Sure, I am bewitched to say these things. In the name of heaven, what ails you now? She cried. I gave my honor, I groaned. I gave my honor, and now I have broken it. Oh, Katrina! I am asking you what it is, she said. Was it these things you should not have spoken? And do you think that I have no honor then, or that I am one that would betray a friend? I hold up my right hand to you and swear. Oh, I knew you would be true, said I. It's me, it's here. 
I that stood but this morning and outfaced them, that risked rather to die disgraced upon the gallows than do wrong, and a few hours after I throw my honor away by the roadside in common talk. There is one thing clear upon our interview, says he, that I could rely on your pledged word. Where is my word now? Who could believe me? You could not believe me. I am clean, fallen down. I had best die. All this I said with a weeping voice, but I had no tears in my body. My heart is sore for you, said she, but be sure you are too nice. I would not believe you, do you say? I would trust you with anything. And these men? I would not be thinking of them, men who go about to entrap and destroy you. Fie, this is no time to crouch. Look up. Do you not think I will be admiring you like a great hero of the good? And you a boy not much older than myself? And because you said a word too much in a friend's ear, that would die ere she betrayed you, to make such a matter, it is one thing that we must both forget. Katrina, said I, looking at her hangdog, is this true of it? Would you trust me yet? Will you not believe the tears on my face, she cried. It is the world I am thinking of you, Mr. David Balfour. Let them hang you. I will never forget. I will grow old and still remember you. I think it is great to die so. I will envy you that gallows. And maybe all this while I am but a child frightened with bulls, said I. Maybe they but make a mock of me. It is what I must know, she said. I must hear the whole. The harm is done at all events, and I must hear the whole. I had sat down on the wayside where she took a place beside me, and I told her all that matter, much as I have written in it, my thoughts about her father's dealings being alone omitted. Well, she said when I had finished, you are a hero, surely and I never would have thought the same. And I think you are in peril, too, O oh, Simon Fraser, to think upon that man, for his life and the dirty money, to be dealing in such traffic. And just when she called out aloud with a queer word that was common to her and belongs, I believe, to her own language, My torture, says she, look at the sun. Indeed, it was already dipping towards the mountains. She bid me come again soon, gave me her hand, and left me in a turmoil of glad spirits. I delayed to go home to my lodging, for I had a terror of immediate arrest, but got some supper at a change-house, and the better part of that night walked by myself in the barley-fields, and had such a sense of Katrina's presence that I seemed to bear her in my arms. End of chapter 7